0: M. S. W. Media.
1: The Manhattan D.A. has Trump's tax returns. Does this mean he's going to prison sometime soon? Let's get on topic. To On Topic, a weekly in depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode with special thanks. To Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Kimberly Summers, thanks for joining us, Kimberly, Shane Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You, too, can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Maddie, I have to say this was pretty big news, and it's really the first time uh, that I started to think we may see charges against criminal charges against Donald Trump in the not-too-distant future. That's really something.
0: And believe me, people are eager for it, uh, as, you, as you saw from the comments. They're like, when's he going to jail? And I think that's a question people have, You know, the, the whether there are going to be criminal charges or only civil charges. Uh, you know, folks want to see accountability. We've we talked about that every single week, I think, for years.
1: Well, yeah. You know, here's the thing. Here's the funny thing, Patty. I have been like the naysayer, the wet blanket uh, this uh, for years on this. In other words, people are always like, well, is Mueller going to bring down Trump? And is this and that? I'm always like, nope. is impeachment going to bring down Trump? No, nope. I'm always like the one saying, you know, no. Uh, and it turned out I was right, of course. Uh, I, on that, obviously, he, you know, he he stayed till the very end when he tried to overthrow our system of government. Uh, for Christ's sakes, uh, but now I will say uh, I'm I'm pretty convinced that they're going to be bringing a case, and the reason I'm convinced is, you know, they hired uh, F T I Consulting, uh, who I've hired in the past, very fancy uh, forensic accounting firm, and I will tell you from personal experience, they are very expensive. My clients uh, had to pay a lot of money for F T I. So I think you don't you don't hire a firm that expensive uh, or bring in an outside prosecutor like they did uh to bring him into the team uh, a, a, an outside lawyer to you know kind of be a former prosecutor to come to join the team unless you're pretty serious about going to the finish line.
0: Yeah, I would uh, I would imagine so and I I'm guessing this will be a great conversation for all of us legal geeks to uh, enjoy. <laughs> because, uh, in addition to, you know, really having that desire for You know, holding the president, the former president accountable, because after this crazy weekend of worshiping gold statues of Trump, we want to see something happen.
1: Well, absolutely. That was then by that statue was pretty bizarre, right? It was like the golden calf from the Old Testament. Uh, Uh, Pretty, pretty bizarre stuff. I I will say I am for the for maybe the first time in a while. I'm really excited myself to learn something legally here in this podcast. I'm often you know kind of guiding you guys uh listeners to the question to kind of get to the answers here and i you know more or less know the answers already but here's one this is a case where this is going to be in you know brought by the manhattan da's office in new york state court and you know like most lawyers i'm licensed in you know not licensed in every state most lawyers are licensed in like one state i happen to be licensed in two in, uh, in illinois and california And I practice all over the country. I do. I do practice in New York. I have a case in federal court there right now, but not really in state court. So I've got a lot to learn about uh, state court uh, procedure in New York, uh, the statutes themselves. We're going to get into the nitty gritty here because we have a guest who is literally the perfect guest on this topic. Okay, Daniel Alonzo, first of all, is a listener uh, in this podcast, which is super cool. Uh, that he's somebody who actually is just like you listening in every week, but he's also not only a former federal prosecutor, but he began his career at the Manhattan DA's office, and then he came back as the deputy to Cy Vance, who's the lead, you know, uh, pro- you know prosecutor, the lead district attorney who heads up the office now. So you're going to have somebody who spent years of his life in the Manhattan DA's office. At one point, you know, very high management in that office, knows Vance personally, worked alongside him, and really can give us a great sense of what it's going to be like for that office to go through this investigation and potentially uh, bring a case against Donald Trump and or his company. So let's bring in
2: Daniel Alonzo.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks a lot for having me. And please feel free to call me Dan.
1: Oh, well, thanks, Dan. So let's start. At, at sort of a top level here uh, a lot of a lot of people are wondering what is the significance let 's just start at a very high level. What is the significance of the tax returns and all these related financial documents going to the manhattan d a s office let 's start there
2: well it's kind of twofold right one is if they're doing a tax fraud investigation which it seems like that's part of what they're doing the significance is obviously crucial you can't do a a tax fraud investigation without knowing what the tax returns say what was said to the tax authorities what was certified and then most importantly in cases of you know companies like this one and and large-scale executives you want to know what was told to the accountants right because the the defense often is in these cases that you know, oh well, yeah, the accountants just put this under my nose and and I signed it. Uh, what what really the accountants and lawyers end up testifying in cases like these if they are if this were to be a tax case they end up testifying that they had um, received the information from the client and so that is part of the these millions of pages that the DA's office has gotten a hold of. So obviously this is all crucial um, for for any tax investigation. On the flip side, if they're doing a non-tax fraud investigations, say fraud against banks or fraud against insurance companies as as, has sort of trickled down from the Michael Cohen testimony and from some of the the news reporting, um, then the tax returns are relevant to see if the Trump organization or particular individuals are saying one thing to one group of people when it suits their needs and a different thing to a different group of people, right? So you might want to show... A lot of income to get a bank loan and not a lot of income when you're paying your taxes uh, particularly your income taxes you might want to show a high valuation for a property when you're trying to put it up as against a loan or you're trying to get insurance uh and a low valuation if you're trying to pay if you're trying to uh, minimize your property taxes so uh you know there is sort of a uh, a thing that white-collar prosecutors do as as you know is they try to see what different things did the did the, Uh, targets or subjects of the investigation say at different times.
1: So that's, that's exactly right. And there was a lot packed into your answer. One thing I will say as a starting point is that fraud is the way I explain it is it's essentially when you lie to people to get their money. And so, you know, you mentioned tax fraud or another type of fraud case. So a tax fraud case is essentially where you make false statements on your tax returns in order to pay less money to the government Essentially, you're getting money that should be in the United States Treasury, or in this case should be going to the new york uh government the state government, or uh in you mentioned a different kind of a fraud, for example, as you point out, if they're sending if they're telling one thing to one entity and another thing to another they're they're defrauding one or the other right if they're telling them different different things that's essentially on the fraud side of things where the case is going to come down is what the false statements are and then how you can prove Trump's state of mind regarding those false statements. Is that right?
2: Uh, For sure. uh, You know, I would, I would sort of push back a tiny bit and just, just because you have, different valuations or different statements at different times doesn't necessarily mean you were defrauding one or the other, because there could be other explanations. They could, for example, have used different kinds of accounting for different things that they said, or they could, there could have been different assumptions, or they were in different times. So, you know, it, it is a very much a reason to investigate if they're saying very different things um, about the same property to different groups of people. It's, it's a reason to investigate, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there is a fraud. And even once, as you I think you pointed out, even once they are able to prove that there was a fraud, you need to further connect that fraud with a particular person in their own state of mind. You have to knowingly and intentionally seek to defraud whoever it is.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And I, I think that's an important clarification because I was speaking very loosely and colloquially there. Um, it, it can be challenging, of course, to to prove exactly what you just said. In other words, not just a statement that a statement is false, but what the state of mind is of the person who is, let's say, transmitting a tax return that or signing a tax return that contains a false statement. Uh, I often have people ask me, "Well, why isn't such and such senator or congressman, you know, g- going to getting prosecuted for some statement they made that's false?" and a lot of the answer comes down to that that state of mind requirement. In in this context, what you know, can you explain to us how a, a prosecutor might go about proving the state of mind of a taxpayer uh, who has a false statement in a tax
2: return? I mean, you know, putting putting aside a cooperating witness, right, who sort of walks you through it, and we don't know if they have that now. They have a little bit a little bit of that with Michael Cohen, who I'm who I'm happy to talk about. You know his pros and cons as a witness, if you <laughs> uh, if you'd like. Putting that aside, you know you want to do it in a, in a systematic way. You you want to first find out what was said at what particular time. Um, how you might know it was you know once your once your I think your question assumes that you've proven that it was false and that it was perhaps fraudulent, which is that step further. You know uh, false statements in order to get money or to pay less money and say taxes. Um, then you want to look to see what communications you can put into the mind of the particular person you're investigating. So you want to see emails and minutes of meetings, and you want to talk to witnesses about what they were told and what they told the particular uh, person. And you want to, you know, there will be necessarily certain things that are key assumptions that are made in order to make the income or valuation or whatever it is higher or lower. And that's what you want to zero in on. Uh, one thing I want to caution for, to people who are saying, oh, wow, these, these documents are here, they're a smoking gun, it's very rare that the work papers of, a, of an accountant will contain a smoking gun. Perhaps the communications might, but that's also um, unlikely. You'd, you'd really want to start with the assumption here that perhaps the accountants were lied to, and then you want to find out what was going on inside the Trump organization. Uh, so again, you know, just, just as, a, as a big backdrop here, This is all educated speculation. We don't know what's going on, but that's what you want to do. You want to find out what communications went back and forth, and witnesses are going to be crucial for that because it's not all going to be in the documents.
1: Yeah, I've got to say, Dan, I really appreciate the caution with which you're approaching this. You know, I've had people ask me, I had journalists even ask me this week, you know, what's going to be the smoking gun? What's going to be the specific false statements? All these questions that we really don't know. I think it's fair to say we have very limited information about this investigation, And what you're doing is you're helping use your experience and the insight you have from from the years that you've spent. uh, You know, I I imagine not just as a prosecutor, but also on the defense side and, you know, trying to help people see this case or is the way you see it, as opposed to actually being able to tell them exactly what's going to happen.
2: Yeah, that's right. I can't. I can't tell them. Uh, it's. I don't even know if the people inside the office uh, know right now what's going to happen. I mean, they just got these records, and it's millions of pages. So you know as well as I do how, you know, how, how much of a pain it can be to go through so many documents. Now you don't have to go through them one by one. Obviously, first of all, in this day and age, you have data analytics tools which will help them sift. But also, you they're going to be able to zero in on particular pieces if they're particularly if they're well organized so they they may not know which way this is heading although I'm sure they know it's a substantial case but or substantial reason to investigate I mean uh and so certainly we we should not be expected to know where it's going And I'd be very suspect of people who who uh who might say they know where it's going because I sure don't but I have again educated speculation as as I've expressed to you
1: that's right. I mean, the most that I feel that I'm able to say is that it sure looks to me that they are, I would say all in on this case, but they're they're devoting very substantial resources to it, which tells me that they think that, you know, th- they think that this case is worth, you know, going very heavily in on. In other words, if I, you know, was hiring, you know, FTI consulting, for example, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be doing that if I didn't think that ultimately, in the end, I would have a case that I'd be able to bring.
2: That, that's clear. That's clear. It's clear they're all in. It's clear they believe that this is a substantial matter to be investigated. Uh, they, you know, they brought in a special assistant D.A. Uh, from private practice, and that's very, very unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, as I, I've said before, the office has a lot of really good white-collar prosecutors. So I don't think it was, strictly speaking, necessary to bring in somebody from the outside. But I think that having somebody with Mark's experience, this is Mark Comerance I'm talking about, will be uh, of value. He'll be able to bring an outsider's perspective. Uh, and, but I, I do think that the fact that they brought him in, if we're reading tea leaves, means that they consider it a substantial investigation. And he does, because I don't think he would have you know, upended his own, his own life to do this if you didn't think it was at least a substantial investigation. But I think that's I think that's about as far as we can go, Renato. I don't think we, we can go much farther than to say it's a substantial investigation and it could well result in charges.
1: Yeah, I think they, they think, you know, in other words, he thinks and I, I hadn't thought about it from that angle before, but he thinks that there's something that's going to come out of this case and they think that there is, but they don't know. I mean, they can't know until they really do the work. And get the evidence together and determine at the very end, do they have sufficient evidence to charge? Is that a fair way to put it?
2: Yeah, I think that's that's fair. You know, one thing that, that may not be so obvious to your listeners, um, and I know you practice in Illinois, I don't know what the situation is there, but the law and the rules are uh, more difficult for prosecutors in state court in white collar cases in New York than they would be in federal court. So you have that additional hurdle of, a, you know, a variety of rules that Um, You know, obstacles is too strong a a term, but it certainly isn't as straightforward as it would be when you and I were federal prosecutors bringing mail fraud or wire fraud or bank fraud or tax evasion uh, or a conspiracy, you know, the so-called conspiracy to defraud the United States. Those are more flexible tools uh, and the procedural tools are more flexible as well.
1: That's interesting. Can you give a little bit of context to that? Because this is actually news to me as somebody who. Uh, has only practiced in the Southern District of New York and in terms of the criminal side, have never practiced in, uh, you know, state court in New York. Uh,
2: sure. The, the Actually, anyone who's interested in chapter and verse, uh, D.A. Vance recognized this problem early on in his tenure as Manhattan D.A. and commissioned a, uh, a task force and a report that laid this all out in 2013. I was co-chair of that task force, it was called the New York State White Collar Crime Task Force. And so that lays out pretty much chapter and verse of the problems that I'll, I'll give you a, a snapshot of and, and made recommendations, which unfortunately uh, have, to this day, not, not, largely not been made, not been implemented. So, um, so basically, there, there are a few things. Let's start with procedural and then I'll go to the substantive. So procedurally, just grand jury practice is much more cumbersome. There's a, there's a right to grand jury indictment, both in the federal system and the state system. But in the state system, grand juries sit for a much shorter period of time. So you have to impanel a special grand jury when you have a case of any complexity. They, generally speaking, are not allowed to consider hearsay. So you have to drag a lot no. of witnesses in. You have to drag a lot of witnesses directly in front of the grand jury. Uh, that problem means that, you know, if if you only have a quorum on a certain day, so all 23 grand jurors aren't there, they might not be able to They might the ones who were absent that particular day might not be able to consider certain charges unless they heard the essential and critical evidence. You cannot read transcripts from one grand jury to another like you can do in federal court. Um, And every witness who is called uh, unless they waive it receives automatic, complete transactional immunity. So New York is the only state in the entire United States that gives both automatic immunity and transactional immunity. Uh, You and I, of course, are used to the use, use and fruits immunity of federal court. Uh, which only happens if somebody asserts the Fifth Amendment and the prosecutor wants to get a court order to grant it. But in state court, it's automatic. Um, which means that first, you know, you could mess up and give immunity to somebody who has substantial liability. But, but more, more typically in a case like this, it, it's just fodder for the defense at trial to cross-examine every witness, even if they're completely innocent, on the fact that they got full immunity. So that's, you know, that's just a. And atmospheric, and, and a little bit of a pain. The final thing I'd say, uh, the final two things I'll say, um, I will say uh, procedurally, is that uh, after the grand jury indictment has been returned, with all these witnesses testifying and not just relying, as we did in federal court, on the on the agents largely, um, there is a right to have the federal, the state judge inspect the grand jury minutes, decide if every count is supported by sufficient evidence, and then either dismiss or affirm the charges before it's allowed to go to the jury. So it's a much more cumbersome process after indictment and before trial. And and as a result, a lot of these cases are often delayed months or sometimes over a year for the judge to be able to read the minutes, look at the exhibits, et cetera. So it is very complicated. And the last thing is that um, accomplice testimony in state court is required to be corroborated count by count uh, by by non-accomplice testimony. So unlike in federal court where we might have one one accomplice corroborate another uh, or sometimes a, a charge might be naked. But usually you have you have a, a looser standard of corroboration in state court. It's much more rigid. So all that, I hope, causes you to to break into sweats as a former federal prosecutor and think, wow, that's hard. Um, and in fact, it is. Yeah. Um, no kidding. So I'll, I'll pause there. But there are also substantive issues that I can talk about.
1: Wow. Well, look, that we're, we're perhaps geeking out too much. For some of my listeners, but I will say to all of you listening at home that for me as a former federal prosecutor, what this sounds to me like is a lot of the ways in which we're able to streamline our grand jury practice in the federal level, where it's more or less a formality that you're going before the grand jury in many ways, where you just essentially are putting a, an FBI agent into summarize or an IRS agent to summarize the evidence in the case and to just kind of walk through all of it at a high level. That's not going to work here this is going to create additional hurdles. Uh, And frankly, uh, you know, in a a way, in a time where they may not have, I mean, they're already trying to push this case forward as quickly as they can. This is just going to make their job even harder. Uh, And so, you know, before I get to the issue of timing and speed, I do know we have a question from our listeners. Uh, Maddie, uh, do you have that one for us?
0: Yes. Hey, look, a lot of folks want justice, so they're wait they're eager for accountability. Um, so one question is: if they discover initial crimes early in the investigation and have a strong case, will they file charges while digging through the trove of documents, or will they wait until investigation is complete before laying any charges?
2: Uh, you know, so with so many things that obviously depends on what we're talking about, but as a general matter. Uh, The DA's office never liked to file charges little by little. Always you would tend to wait till the end of an investigation, file everything all at once. Um, Today, after January 1st of 2020, that's almost the only way to proceed because the discovery rules have uh, become uh, very, very broad. And they're probably broader than any state in the country. So prosecutors really have to start. Uh, turning things over right away and pretty much everything. So, you know, if you're not finished with one part of the investigation, you might be forced to nevertheless turn over the investigative materials um, to the defense or before you're you're ready to do that. So I think they probably will wait till the end.
1: Very interesting. Very interesting. One thing I, I want to ask you is, you know, we, we've heard talk uh, even from Vance's own office About statute of limitations. In fact, one of the arguments that they made to courts when they were trying to seek these materials is that every day that goes by is a day that is going to essentially make it harder for them to meet their, uh, you know, the obligation to bring charges before the statute of limitations expires. So one thing I'm curious about here, first of all, you know, I think it would be helpful for our listeners to know what the statute of limitations is here. But then also, even we've been talking about fraud charges. Are there other types of charges that might have different statutes of limitations that might be applicable?
2: So, yeah, and, I, and I, I'm uh, aware of your admonition not to geek out too much. It's, <laughs> it's easy to do when you're talking to another to another lawyer. But uh, the, the the bottom line is that the statute of limitations for most felonies in New York is five years, and for all the ones we're talking about here, if they're felonies, it's five years. There are uh, some misdemeanors that are possible here, and so th- those a misdemeanor generally defined in New York law is a crime that you can't go to jail for more than a year for. So it's still a, a, it's still a crime, and it's still you know serious. Obviously, nobody wants to go to jail for a day, let alone a year, but it's not the same as a felony, which has much greater penalties. Um, so the misdemeanor statute is two years, and in terms of crimes other than fraud— Uh, And and there is no general crime of fraud in New York. I'll get to that in a minute. But there are other crimes that are sort of peripheral, like, for example, the falsification of business records is a crime that they're clearly looking at in general and with respect to the Stormy Daniels payment as well. And there, I I suspect that what they were talking about was that there is a controversy as to whether um, if the Trump organization falsified their business records about why they made that payment to Michael Cohen, um, there's a question as to whether under New York law, that's a misdemeanor, i.e. a two-year statute of limitations or a felony, a five-year statute. If it's a felony, they can show it's a felony, um, then they're still within the statute because the payment was made, I think, in 2017. But if it's a misdemeanor, then they're out of, they're out of luck for that, for that charge.
1: All right. That's interesting. You know, I had seen some press reports that some of the statutes were six years. Are those press reports mistaken?
2: Uh, that's federal tax um, evasion is a six year statute. So, so it, you know, it's theoretically possible in all of this, by the way, that they, they might gather evidence and it might be better prosecuted in federal court. So, you could imagine them ultimately making a referral back to the Justice Department. I don't know what the reaction of the Justice Department would be. Obviously, we don't even have a confirmed attorney general yet. Uh, but, but I do think that that could be one possible outcome of this uh, if the New York hurdles were too great.
1: That's yeah, really interesting. One thing I think would be helpful is you know you you're somebody who's been a federal prosecutor, but you also obviously have uh, substantial experience in the Manhattan DA's office. For people who aren't familiar, can you explain what that office is like and what the reputation of that office is? It's to me, it's it's got a very unique reputation amongst state prosecutors and state prosecutorial offices.
2: Sure, and I'm, I'm look, I'm glad you asked that because. Most people who have gone through that office have a great affection and, and love for it. it. It was my first job at a law school to be an assistant DA in Manhattan. I didn't return until many years later when Vance got elected to be the chief assistant DA. But when I was first out of law school, uh, you know, that's the job I wanted to do. You know, my friends were mostly going to law firms and I just said, boy, this sounds great. And the reason was because it was kind of legendary, right? The office, the office had a, a reputation well beyond the the size of the of the county of New York, which is the smallest geographical county in the entire mainland United States. So, you know, it it obviously had a real outsized reputation and a a national one, right? Um, Part of that reason is because early on, you know, going back to the 1930s, back when DAs across the city, the state, and and the country in so many places were very political uh, organizations. They They were chock full of, you know, what was called patronage, Jobs where you know you'd hire lawyers to prosecute cases from the clubhouse, and then you know every time the DA turned over, then everyone would get fired, and a whole bunch of new people from the clubhouse, the political clubhouse, would come in. And so Manhattan, very early on with the election of Thomas E. Dewey um, at the end of 1937, uh, changed all that. Right? Dewey brought in uh, a bunch of people that were beyond reproach. After there was a real kind of bunch of scandals. Uh, in Tammany Hall, which was the back then the New York County Democratic Party. And um, Dewey brought in a professional staff. And the really important thing is that he only stayed four years and his successor, Frank Hogan, who had worked for Dewey, was a Democrat. And he stayed 31 years. And Hogan really kind of institutionalized what I just said. You know, I'm not going to hire from the clubhouse. I'm really going to make it about, um, you know, having the having the best people, you know, do the right thing, seek to do justice as they see uh, fit in the best way they can do it. Now, obviously, we can all agree or disagree on what that means, and things change with the times. But Hogan really professionalized the office. And then when he left, the next elected DA, there was an interim for a short time, but the next elected DA was Robert Morgenthau, who ended up serving 35 years and, if, and made the reputation of the office even stronger. So that's the office that Cy Vance got elected into uh, and started— on January 1st, 2010, and I came in with him. So it really did have um, an outsized reputation. And not just about the integrity, it was about the kinds of cases that the office brought. So Morgenthau, and Vance has continued that tradition, has has taken on cases that are, you know, you might not expect a local prosecutor to take on.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And, and that last piece, I think, is very important. You know, early... On uh, in the Trump presidency back in 2017, 2018, I was asked a lot of questions from various journalists about state prosecutions, you know, because obviously there is no bar, there's no justice, you know, no OLC memo that would prevent a state prosecution of Trump. And one point that I made is that often state and local prosecutors just don't have the the experience, expertise, resources to bring really large, complex white collar cases. Uh, and, you know, they often, there are often, dr- they, you know, they don't have, you know, federal prosecutors can pass off cases to the state and they could, they can decline and say, we'll just let the state handle this one. You know, state prosecutors you know usually does not have that luxury and they often are stretched thin and they have a lot of real problems to deal with. You know, I think, what, what's interesting to me is the Manhattan DA's office is one of the offices in the country that really has a reputation for bringing complex white collar cases uh, and winning them. And it has done that for many years. And I think um, this is the one sort of state or local prosecutor that I think um, you know no one would 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 suggest is not up to the task of, of handling even the most complicated case involving Trump's taxes.
2: Oh, yeah. No, that's not a close call. The office is absolutely up to the task in terms of the quality of its lawyers. And uh, it also famously has a squad of maybe 30 or, or more forensic accountants who are very used to doing complex cases. And as you mentioned earlier, that's been supplemented. So the office is very much up to it. There's a question as to whether what what the facts you know possibly could be will fit New York law, which, as I said, substantively has some problems as well.
1: Yeah. Well, before we get to that, one thing that I Um, I do also want to, uh, ask you about as you, you talked a little bit about the, the special, uh, assistant DA who's been brought in. Uh, I, I, it sounds like, you know, him personally, can you tell us a little bit about him, his reputation and experience? I think listeners are interested in, you know, what does he bring to the table? Why, why is he brought in? Can you help, can you help folks understand that?
2: You know, I actually have been racking my brains. I actually think I, I don't think I've met him personally. Um, he's well-known in the New York bar. It's possible that I met him years ago. I know a former partner of his uh, back when he was in a small law firm very, very well. Um, and the, the partner and Mr. Pomerantz have, have an incredibly good reputation as excellent trial lawyers. Um, and, and not just trial lawyers, obviously. Uh, you know, Pomerantz is a... Um, is also an appellate lawyer and a civil litigator. So um, he is somebody who uh, is a great choice if what you're looking for is somebody who brings that outside perspective and the creativity that comes with having, you know, kind of grown up in a different system. He was an assistant U.S. attorney. He obviously has been in high-stakes litigation at a major law firm. So I think all of that is helpful as a compliment to the folks who are existing in the office and are very used to the, all the kinds of things that can go wrong in New York state courts, which somebody who's been a, uh, a federal prosecutor wouldn't necessarily instinctively uh, know. But, but I'm sure there's all sorts of creative ideas that are coming out of Mark Comerance's, um head that will then be you know, kind of socialized within the office, and we'll see if, if uh, they end up moving the ball forward.
1: Very interesting. Well, before I get to a follow-up question about New York law, I do want to uh, go to a listener question. Patty, do you have that for us?
0: Yes. Someone's wondering: Is there a sharing agreement between the Manhattan DA and the state of New York and the IRS? And will the IRS step up and do their own investigation of the Trump family tax returns?
2: So the IRS doesn't doesn't share with with state and local prosecutors. So in order to get in order to have to share tax information the DA would have to have a um, would have to have a referral from the New York state tax department. And we don't know in the public realm, whether they have that or not, but, um, but the IRS would definitely not cooperate with state prosecutors. They're not allowed to by law.
1: Now I want to talk to you a little bit about New York law. You've, you've, you've hinted a few times, you've wetted our lips at the idea that there are some hurdles under New York law, that, uh, that Vance and Vance's team are going to have to overcome. Can you tell us a little bit about those?
2: Sure. And it, it largely has to do with, um, with fraud law, the nature of fraud law, and the penalties that are, that are available. So, you know, federally, as we know, we have kind of the basic anti-fraud law, mail, mail and wire fraud, and then we have some specific ones for different areas like healthcare or bank fraud or securities fraud. Uh, New York has a sort of basic anti-fraud law called scheme to defraud, and it's actually pretty good. Uh, you know, it has a couple of drawbacks, like most significantly, that um, that you have to have more than one victim. So there's no such thing as scheme to defraud, only one victim, because it was originally meant for kind of these mass mailing kind of schemes back in the 70s. But nevertheless, uh, scheme to defraud is pretty good. The problem is that whether you defraud somebody, uh, you know, your two or more victims out of $2,000 or $2 billion, the penalty is still the same. It's still the lowest level fraud on the books, uh, lowest level felony on the books, which is a class E felony, uh, which carries no minimum uh, prison sentence and carries a maximum of one and a third to four years, an indeterminate term of one and a third to four years. So it's the lowest level felony. It doesn't particularly have people quaking in their boots all the time. Of course, nobody wants to be charged with that, but that's, that's a problem. When prosecutors are charged much larger Frauds that are successful, they use the grand larceny statute, which is just basic theft. Um, And that applies whether you steal something from, you know, you steal someone's purse or whether you defraud somebody. But larceny, you know, based on fraud, which is called by false pretenses, is very hard to apply to loan cases um, because a loan by its nature is going to be paid back. And larceny as a general matter requires that when you take the property, you basically intend to take it forever. And so you get the defense in larceny by false pretense cases that this is a loan, and I always meant to take it, pay it back. Uh, okay, okay, you got me. I lied through my teeth, but it was a loan, so I was going to pay it back over the you know ten or twenty year term of the loan. That can be very hard to overcome. And while so while that crime can be the high penalties of the highest level uh, white collar felony, which is a B felony, it's very hard to um, to win that kind of case in a loan case. Um, so that that's really the biggest. There are obviously other things. But that's the biggest thing. You know, you're used to mail fraud, Renato, and and bank fraud, and they're very flexible. Uh, But that's that's just not true of larceny. And even though scheme to defraud is good, the penalties are not high.
1: Yeah, I have to say it's very interesting. It seems like something that's in need of reform, because it shouldn't be the case that it's easier to steal someone who's swiping a candy bar from the store than it is to charge somebody who's got a massive fraud scheme, right? That's defrauding people out of their life savings, for example. It should it shouldn't be this cumbersome to put a case
2: like that together. Agreed. If you're having trouble sleeping tonight, just read the White Collar Crime Task Force Report. I'll send it to you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that I am trying to understand to get my head around, because a question that I've been asked a lot is, you know, will how much are statute issues going to hold back uh, Vance's team, in other words, statute of limitation issues. In other words, look, I not only investigated tax cases, but I represent clients now in state and federal tax cases in multiple jurisdictions. and those cases drag on for years. So you know they just got all these records, they've got a lot to review. Do you Do you think that there's going to be an issue with them being able to complete this investigation in time to consider whether to bring charges before the statute of limitations expires?
2: I think theres they're clearly working towards trying to get this done uh, within this year. I mean, that just seems like all the tea leaves sort of point in that direction, right? The DA's term ends December 31st of this year. We haven't talked about this, but he's likely not running for re-election. There is, you know, these resources they're throwing at it, uh, at the case, and the fact that they've apparently been speaking to Michael Cohen, who is trying to give them a roadmap uh, about what he thinks was going on. And by the way, Michael Cohen, if you listen to to him talk, he's very confident that charges will be brought. I'm not sure that that's something we should, we should hang our hat on, but, uh, but there is. So, so I do think they're going to try to get this done this year. It's certainly possible, particularly using data analytics, particularly with FTI involved and the resources they're throwing at it, but it's also very possible that they, that they're just not able to do it.
1: Yeah. You know, one interesting thing, you mentioned Michael Cohen, of course, Just so everyone knows, because suddenly I think he's popular for people to pay attention to. He's got his own podcast or whatever. But, of course, he's a convicted liar. So, uh, you know, he lied to Congress. He committed fraud. Uh, He's obviously got problems with his testimony. Now, it doesn't mean that he's not usable as a cooperator, but it's notable, I think, that the Southern District of New York, SDNY, federal prosecutors did not think he was forthcoming to them, and that's why they didn't uh, consider giving, or they did, ultimately did not give him cooperation credit themselves.
2: Yeah, it's 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 interesting, Renato. You're you're, you're right. That's that's been reported, and obviously that's not admissible. Uh, that the whatever the Southern District people thought or didn't think, whatever is underlying it, I don't know. I assume the Manhattan DA's office will find out at some point what it was. But you know, as a general matter, I'm not that concerned about Cohen's credibility because he lied to Congress. I'm actually more concerned because of his bias. Uh, he, he obviously really dislikes Donald Trump. And has So, so the, the argument that he has an ax to grind and would shade his testimony, I think might go over better than the argument that, oh, you lied to Congress, therefore nobody can ever believe you at all. As you know, the judge is going to say to the jury, well, that's not the whole issue. That's just, that's just a piece of the puzzle. And of course, the next question is, well, why'd you lie to Congress? You know, who, who, who were you trying to protect? And, you know, the answer is obvious. It was not because Michael Cohen had interest in Moscow. Uh, it was because Donald Trump did. So I don't know how far that's going to get them that Michael Cohen lied uh, to Congress. I think the bias, the, the, the axe to grind, the grudge might get them farther.
1: Interesting. Interesting. I think you could kind of do a combination of the two. Right. In other words, this is a guy that was committing fraud, feathered his own nest and doing that. And it wasn't all connected to Trump. Right. He was doing his own stuff. Then he lies to Congress to protect Trump because he thought that was in his interest at the time. Now he thinks it's in his interest to go against Trump and to build a a name for himself, taking Trump down. That would be the story. That would be the the way that a defense attorney would try to take down Cohen. Right. Something like that.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. The, the, I think that's right. There's also there's also the piece about his own tax convictions. But right? yeah. I've heard him on his podcast basically say that his own tax evasion conviction was the fault of his accountant. It was a mistake. So that will play right into the hands of whatever the defense is against whomever is charged in any Manhattan DA invest, tax investigation, because that will be the exact same defense. So there, there are, are pluses and minuses. On the plus side, he's not an arch criminal. I mean, when I was a federal prosecutor, I put Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, on the stand at two different trials. Now, for the time he was committing his securities fraud, he was an arch criminal. And if you saw the movie, you know, he was also doing drugs and, you know, committing all sorts of other crimes to say nothing of perjury, suborning perjury before the SEC and the predecessor of FINRA. So, so he, he had a lot of baggage. Um, I think that in comparison, Michael Cohen, yeah, he got in with, with the Trump crowd, but other than that, he wasn't otherwise out there just committing crimes. He was just, you know, perhaps engaging in sharp practice. And I'm sure he lied more than more than before Congress. But uh, but I think he's certainly salvageable as a witness.
1: Wow, very interesting. All right, I you're, you've got you're kind of the I wouldn't say pro uh, pro Cohen, but you're, you're an optimist. You're a Cohen optimist, and I'm maybe a Cohen pessimist as these things go. <laughs> I, I suppose. You know, one other thing that I find interesting is this whole issue of Ivanka's consulting fees. That's been discussed a lot, right? In other words, that being a potential false statement was, you know, you know, were was were, were the fees that she was supposedly getting for doing quote consulting unquote, you know, was that a false statement? Was she not actually doing consulting? Can you break down for the listeners because that's come up what that, how that fits into the, uh, potentially fits in, obviously neither of us have personal knowledge, but fits in potentially into a broader, you know, investigation or charges in a case like this. And then what does that mean for Ivanka, whether in terms of potential liability?
2: So we have to break that down. And, and this is where the fact that they brought on FTI both to give them a lot of, um, you know, help in get in reviewing the documents, but also to give them substantive expertise. is That's going to be very important because this industry, real estate, is full of its own rules, as every industry is, right? Every industry has its own norms, its own way of doing business. You know, one example is in, in real estate development, you always have, you know, special LLCs that are set up just for the project, just in case it goes bankrupt and it doesn't affect the main company. There are tax breaks involved. And so it's very, very complicated. So I don't know, as I sit here, and I'm I'm very curious to, to find out what the experts have to say, whether it's unusual to give a consulting fee to somebody who's otherwise an executive of the development company. So, you know, if all we, we knew, right, we know it's Ivanka's money because it, we, people compared it to her, uh, her financial disclosure with the government. But we otherwise would just see a, a very large, uh, apparently is a large percentage of the, of the um, payment was uh, uh, this, this consulting fee. And it said oh, it was an overseas project. So ordinarily, you and I would immediately think foreign bribery, FCPA. But if we know it's going to Ivanka Trump, then we have to wonder, well, why is she getting all this money Uh, if she's otherwise an executive and presumably they wouldn't have to pay her to consult because she's already getting her salary. But I have to caution that we don't know the real estate industry. And for all we know, that is some standard practice. So we have to, we have to really ask an expert and I have not done that because I'm not involved in the, in the matter, but that would be one of the first things I would do. I would see this very fruitful to, to go down that path. You know, why are they doing this? And, and as you said, are they lying about it being consulting fee? Was it really something else? Right. I mean, as I understand IRS rules, you have to have some actual consulting that you're doing. Um, So, yeah, it could be really significant, but I would not sort of start slapping cuffs on people yet based on that.
1: So one topic you brought up is, of course, uh, that uh, uh, D.A. Vance's term will be up at the end of the year and he doesn't look like he's running. There's a whole slew of people running for, uh, you know, to take his place. I don't want to get into any of the specifics of the race. I know there's a lot of a whole assorted cast of people who are running. But what I do think is interesting is, of course, some of those people are making statements about Trump. Some of them have made all sorts of public statements about him attacking him in the past. Trump is, it's fair to say, not the most popular person in Manhattan. Uh, I, my question for you is this. How, you know, how in your mind does that play into a potential trial strategy for Trump's defense? In other words, could you imagine them – showing video and quoting the, you know, then DA making all sorts of statements and then use it to suggest that this was some sort of motivated uh, prosecution to the jury or to the judge.
2: Yeah, sure. I can. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one person you have, you, you will not have heard making pub- public statements condemning Trump is Cy Vance, right? Cause he's a very careful uh, prosecutor. So I think, yeah, I mean, I, who knows if a judge would allow that in, but you can make a lot of noise. I mean, you know as well as I do that in, in a normal white collar case or, or, or relatively common in white collar cases is some attack on the government. Uh, sometimes that attack is just substantive based on you know, the allegation of flimsy charges, but otherwise it's bias or it's um, you know, some, some level of hiding the ball or corruption or whatever. And people make those allegations relatively freely in criminal cases. If you've got on top of that somebody actually making public statements that are negative about about the person, um, you know, that could be an issue. It's not going to derail the prosecution. Obviously, if a candidate as a private citizen wants to condemn what Trump was doing as president, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they can't be fair in a prosecution, but it would muddy it up a little bit, I think. It's gone beyond that, though. I mean, some of the candidates have made statements kind of intimating. Not anymore. They've kind of stopped lately since there's been some attention to it. But early on, some candidates have made Statements that were more along the lines of, you know, federal pardons don't count in New York state, that kind of thing, after they've already declared their candidacy. So you have to be careful with that kind of stuff, because there you could find yourself subject to a motion to, to recuse the DA.
1: Yeah, uh, I do think it'll definitely be an issue at trial. Uh, you know, it, the the defense is going to try to find ways to get that in front of the jury unless the judge really strongly keeps it out of there. I would be uh, if I was on the defense team really trying to make issue with the public statements by the then by the then D.A., you know, whoever that ends up being. I will say another thing that I think people don't think enough about is, you know, the composition of a jury pool. I mean, look, you know, yes, Manhattan uh, went for Biden by a huge margin, but there is still a percentage of people who voted for Donald Trump and you're going to have a jury uh, all you need is one person who loves Donald Trump on the jury and just wants to acquit him. You could hang the jury and potentially have yourself, uh, you know, buy, buy a, a second trial out of that. I mean, what, what do you think about that potential concern?
2: Yeah, I think that probably Trump will, would raise Trump, by the way, we're assuming Trump is the defendant. It could be the organization or one of the LLCs. Sure. It could be an executive. Donald Trump may not go anywhere near a courtroom. So, But whoever it is, uh, you can imagine them raising, uh, raising that concern more, right? I mean, that Manhattan is 85% Democrats and 15% uh, Republican or other. And so, you know, the pool is going to be stacked against me, so let's move it, you know, somewhere else. That, that might, might well be a, uh, a motion from the beginning. But, uh, you know, in terms of having one person who's pro-Trump, <laughs> I, I would consider that sort of unlikely in Manhattan, but not impossible. And even if they were pro-Trump, there were pro-Trump people on the Manafort jury and they still convicted him, so I don't think that that's necessarily going to going to do it. But if but I would expect quite a bit of probing, jury questionnaires uh, on on to- on those topics for sure.
1: Yeah, I agree. And look, it it's not entirely dispositive. Uh, and you're right, the Manafort juror. You know, there was one Manafort juror, it was a real MAGA type who did vote to convict, although not they, not in every count. Right, that was one where they sh- they probably should have swept. There was an overwhelming evidence of Manafort, but yeah. I agree with you. But nonetheless, if I was, you know, representing Trump, you know, I think that, you know, that would be the sort of play you'd make. You try to be you try to figure out who you might be able to get there if there's one or two people that are fans. And, you know, similarly, on the prosecution side, that would be a potential concern or litigation risk that you would consider is, you know, look, you're you've got the former president of the United States or his company as the defendant. You know, there's going to be strong opinions, not only in terms of the motion, like you said, to transfer or to change venue, which I'm sure they're going to try to do no matter what. Right. But but separately, you know, am I going to get some one juror because people are going to it's very hard to find people who don't have strong opinions on Trump. They may not reveal themselves. Right. They may think it's their mission from Q or from wherever Uh, to uh. jump off. I don't know. You never know.
2: (laughs) Now we're getting into rank speculation, but but sure. But remember, one juror at worst can hang the jury, which is not good, but can't acquit uh, uh, the the defendant. So
1: correct. I I just I want to give people a sense of the sort of oddities that you think of when you're a trial lawyer or a prosecutor. These are the sort of things that I would be thinking about, you know, on a case not quite about. Obviously, you're not you know, not charging the former president of the United States, but thinking about. How a, how how is this going to play to a jury of normal people? Right. And how is this case going to look to them? And what are the potential downsides and upsides? I have to imagine there's a lot of soul searching and navel gazing in the Manhattan DA, DA's office about what that
2: trial is going to look like. Well, it's not just about the jury. It's about the uh, you remember what Dana Bash said about the first presidential debate. <laughs> That's yeah. what it's going to be. Right. Um, an S show uh, and the, the number of people that will be, you know, camped out front and the jurors will have to go through a press gauntlet every day. Uh, it, it's not, you know, it would be a, a challenge for the trial judge who I imagine would be handpicked by the the state's uh, office of court administration so that we have, you know, sort of the right judge who is capable of really controlling the courtroom. I mean, we have lots of capable judges, of course, but you're going to want somebody who um, is not going to is going to filter through the noise and just try to push the case forward as a you know a, a, as it should be.
1: Wow! Well, this is exciting. A lot to look forward to, Dan. It's been a real pleasure having you on our podcast. I've learned a lot from you. Uh, I think this is fascinating, and I have the feeling that we're going to have more to talk about in the future on this topic.
0: Anytime.
2: Thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate it being on the show.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.